Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Good morning. I'm very, we are all very excited to be here today. This really is a new first step for mankind. I would hope we keep looking for the answers to those really tough questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? And are we alone? Internal cam check is a go. Our craft was heading for a moon of Jupiter, known as Europa. Yeah, my boy's gonna be six when I see him again. So proud of you. Oh, she's flowing real good. Commencing egress. Is never get old. Prep for orbital transfer. We are clear of Jupiter's orbit. Pitching for power descent. Ladies and gentlemen, hold on. Here we go. The best hopes of success is under the ice. Let's go for a swim. Yeah. Are you guys seeing this? It's beautiful. Come back to the ship now. I want to see if it's reacting to my lights. I'm going to turn them off. Compared to the breadth of knowledge yet to be known, does your life actually matter? No one at home knows we're alive. Find a way. We have to. For today's episode of Daily Horror Habit, I'm joined by returning friend of the show Bernie to chat about the found footage sci-fi film Europa Report, which is currently streaming on Hoopla. Directed by Sebastian Cordero, Europa Report follows a privately funded mission to seek out life on Jupiter's fourth largest moon. But as is typically the case with deep space travel, the trip takes a toll some might ask, was the potential reward worth the risk? So without further ado, here's our discussion on Europa Report. Bernie, welcome back to the show, man. I appreciate it. I'm excited to chat about Europa Report, man. Yeah, so we're kind of switching things up a little bit for our uh, found footage uh, focused conversations from traditional horror. We've talked about things like the Blair Witch Project and whatnot, but we're kind of moving a little bit away from that and we're moving towards sort of like sci-fi disaster, if you will. Um, But I think that this film, Europa Report, which we're going to talk about today, is a really interesting use of the found footage medium. And it's one that I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts on. So how do you think sort of Europa Report handles the found footage uh, format to tell its story? It's very different, obviously, right? You're, I think most people, when you think of found footage, you're thinking of like a Blair Witch Project type of a movie. Whereas this is, you know, obviously it has a cosmic twist to it. Um, So when I was first watching this movie, I was a little bit confused just with the dynamic of how they present the various different scenes, right? Because it's kind of cut up. Um, But watching it a second time when you get a a little bit more of a feel for, you know, pushing that aside rather, um, 
you know, I think just the movie itself, it has such a unique taste or a twist rather on the found footage uh, genre. I think it's definitely carved itself a, a very nice niche uh, in, in that horror subgenre. Yeah, one of the things that we've really talked about in terms of found footage films are are these stories that had to be told through the found footage uh, format specifically, right? I think with a film like The Blair Witch Project, it makes sense, right? Within the context of the film, it's a group of kids in the woods that are documenting, hunting down this uh, fable or this kind of like ghost story. Right. Whereas something like Diary of the Dead also, I think, serves as an example of, hey, we're going to document these events as they happen in real time. Right. But then sometimes we may have come across certain found footage films where it's like, is this kind of just a, is this just kind of cashing in on the popularity of a genre, mm-hmm. right? Does this necessarily have to be told in this format? And that was sort of my skepticism a little bit going into Europa Report. I didn't know much about it mm-hmm. other than it's supposed to be about these scientists and uh, astronauts that are going out to Europa to find life on that planet and documenting it. But the, I was really impressed with the ways in which the film is able to really capitalize on the found footage format, both in its narrative, mm-hmm. but also in the exploration of like the setting itself, right? That being space or that being when they finally land on Europa at the end of the film. And that was what I was most taken by was the variety of perspectives, right? It's not just an astronaut walking around with the camera. It's helmet cameras. It's um, exterior and interior spaceship cameras that are documenting movement in areas of space in a way that feels very natural. It feels like you're actually getting a real sense of like literally space in terms of what the astronauts are experiencing inside, what's happening outside. And there's this very kind of just organic presentation to everything that I think eludes most found footage films, obviously because it's usually a singular device that's recording things. And while that can be effective, and we've obviously seen that be effective, Europa Report's handling of multiple perspectives is one that it just kind of lends the atmosphere, I guess, more so, right? You never kind of like become lost in what you're exploring. We avoid mostly sort of the shaky camera stuff that we've complained about at length uh, in other episodes. But I think that is what I was most surprised by at how well they're able to execute on for uh, for Europe Report's narrative, at least. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the, the other interesting thing about this, most of the found footage films that we've discussed, there isn't really the cast doesn't play a huge part into it, right? Uh, typically speaking, that, that we've found in the last couple of films that we've reviewed. This one was similar. I mean, the the actors, they have some pretty interesting backgrounds and they've had some, um, some cameos or, or uh, been a part of some very interesting films on their own, right? Um, but I think the, the way that this film was cast too, nobody like stood out in a sense, but nobody dragged it down either. I think it was just a a, a mosh posh of, you know, just a, a good amount of actors that, um, you know, just helped push it along. Is, is that kind of a similar thing that you found? Yeah, I think what made, makes me think of first is the taking of Deborah Logan, right? And that, that film had a bigger cast than obviously something like The Blair Witch. Right. But really only the primary interviewer of that film and obviously Deborah Logan herself are really the only standouts, right? If you have a single camera source, it, you're not gonna be able to get everybody in one shot or in most shots, right? You're only gonna be able to capture a couple of people at a time just based on sort of the fluidity of how that camera explores uh, space. And so while Europa Report has a bigger cast, 
it doesn't matter because there's more camera perspectives and you're getting different characters' literal perspectives from their headsets and whatnot. So while it's a bigger cast and maybe they're not necessarily fleshed out to the degree maybe we would like, I feel like they are more vital to the narrative in this just because they help tell the story in terms of giving their perspective, but also just the ways in which the film is able to capture everyone. So nobody feels like they're being left out because early on in sort of their voyage before the Europa gets hit by that uh, solar blast or solar flare that knocks out their communications with Earth, which I think happens uh, six months into their 20 month journey or something yeah. like that, uh, that type of timeline. But it's one of those things where we get so much footage from like the interior sort of just capturing them going about their day to day, the realities of what deep space travel is like. And it really makes this bigger crew feel much more personable than if it was a single camera source that it's like, well, they're gr typically the camera's going to linger on the same three characters out of whatever, nine crew members or something. But with Europa Report, you've got multiple perspectives that are able to make everybody feel included. Everybody feels important to the story that's being told in a way that is really refreshing because I mean, how many of these movies have we seen where there's like two characters that stand out the most and then everybody else is kind of just off to the wayside and doesn't necessarily have the biggest uh, impact on right. the narrative or they just serve as a body count, right? Which I don't feel like that was an issue that Europa Report had, which I thought it would suffer from given how it has such a big cast size. Mm -hmm. And no, I totally agree. I mean, there's the, the interesting thing with Europa Report, it is... In every sense of the term, it is not your traditional type of a, a sci-fi thriller, a horror type of found footage movie. There aren't too many scares in this movie, right? But it doesn't ever feel bland. It always feel like the story is moving along at the right pace. Um, not to say that any of the dialogue necessarily stood out to me, but there are moments of levity throughout the movie. I think at one point, um, Daniel, played by Christian Camarago, he uh, he can't find his toothbrush. Um, and uh, uh, William and Andre, uh, two of his uh, engineers, um, it seems like they're kind of, you know, hiding it from him. It, it's a very small piece to the film, but it's like there's a human angle to this. Again, to your point, this isn't just bodies that are there for some um sci-fi organism or something like that to kill them on um they do have some sort of a place in the movie although it's not necessarily the most um memorable memorable cast again they they do a really good job of pushing it along my my question to you would be did you find the lack of like traditional horror scares uh to take away from the movie or did it enhance it when they did actually have those you know, quote unquote, scary, uh, scary scenes in this movie. Yeah. So I was afraid that this movie was going to kind of go down the rabbit hole of trying to replicate, or I don't even know if it came out before it or after it, but there was another found footage horror film in space called Apollo 18, I believe mm -hmm. that was all about that, where they go to the moon, I think, and they find this Russian uh, pod and there's a creature inside of it, of course. And it's sort of the uh, shaky cam uh, route that we are more than familiar with and I hadn't heard positive things about that So when I found that Europa report didn't introduce that elements until the very end of the film mm -hmm. I was because I had read something online. I was like, well Is this going to just be kind of like boring until we get to that part or right. what is it going to kind of hinder our experience with it or our engagement with the film? 
And again, I was pleasantly surprised to find that Europa Report, again, the presentation, also sort of like fleshing out the characters a little bit more than uh, I was expecting. And there is some actual like added emotional weight to these characters. And that is in the film before they introduce the organism at the end of the film, it really taps into like a psychological horror aspect. This idea that we start to see the ramifications of deep space travel, which I really like because that is very grounded, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the elements that astronauts have to train for because you can't have some guy cracking up six months into your tour into deep space. And so I think that that's an interesting element that the film tackles. I don't know that it necessarily goes as far as I would have liked. I mean, there's that moment where they lose communication and somebody says like, do we go on? Mm -hmm. And then they start to question like, are we doing the right thing? They start to have doubts about pushing forwards. Mm -hmm. And then there's this really great line that um, one of the characters says, which says, uh, compared to the breadth of knowledge yet to be known, what does your life actually matter? And I think that it's a really great line, but at the same time, I don't know that they necessarily go far enough with this, this idea that even if they don't discover anything, that's a discovery in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I sort of would have liked to see a little more pushback between the different characters and have a little conflict there, this idea that do we go on and is the discovery, or even if the discovery is nothing, is that worth risking lives for? And that's something that gets mentioned, but they never really, it never really materializes in anything with a lot of substance. It kind of is just like, well, we should go do this thing. But there isn't like a real sort of like philosophical uh, argument to be had between the characters, which I think would have given it sort of a added depth to their characters, right? It's characters are either for it or against it, but they never really sort of break down why certain people feel that way um, or not, but. So I will say this, I will give you a little bit of pushback on that in, in that uh, realm of if, if the characters did this as well. I think once you're in a position where you're on that spaceship, you've basically um, consciously or subconsciously given your life to, to humanity's efforts of research. And so I think you see a moment very similar to what you're talking about when, um, uh, what's your face? Uh, Dr. Katya, uh, she like is asking to go out and do a, a surface walk, I think was the term. Yeah, for, once right? they land on Europa. And there is a level of pushback from some of the crew because like, we don't want her to die, right? If something happens, anything kind of blows up in that sense. Um, literally or not, uh, <laughs> then there's going to be a problem. Um, I I think that if there would have been, and again, this obviously preference-wise, I think if there would have been pushback on that, I would have, I would have lost interest in that specific character uh, that was doing the pushback, just on the basis that you're not fully in on the mission then. Once that happened, once they all agreed, like, there's a moment where they're asking, you know, is it worth it? It seems like they all agree relatively. So I think you're more invested in them because mm. you as a person, obviously are like, they're doing this for us in some kind of a way versus I think that this would have become more of a confrontational film if there would have been people that said no. But to, again, to your point, then you could have gone more into the aspect of, you know, people losing their mind and their their sense of being being on this kind of a long trip. So I definitely understand your aspect of it as well. 
Yeah, I was just thinking more in terms of uh, James Corrigan's characters played by Charteau Copley, mm-hmm. um, who starts to display signs that like when they have that solar flare, even before that, actually, he begins to like miss his family. Yeah. And that's a reality is that you have to make that sacrifice like, hey, I'm going to be gone from my family and loved ones for a specific the duration of our trek into deep space. But at the same time, even though he accepts that, we see that he hasn't really. And we start to see that have ramifications for his sort of like mental state. He's a little more detached. He's a little more depressed and all these things. And you even see that with uh, Andre Block, the uh, uh, who's played by Michael, Michael Ny- Nyquist, uh, who begins to be like very separated. And they're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't leave him alone after these different events that happen. And of course... That is a direct result of what happens to Charteau Copley's character, which we'll get into in a minute. But I think I would have just have liked to see these sort of instances that pop up just amount to a little bit more mm-hmm. in terms of I don't necessarily need the crew to like have a life and death fight about whether or not they should be continuing or not. I think I would have just liked a few more scenes of dialogue with them having a debate about it. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that would have given the film a little more... Uh, sophistication in terms of the dialogue. Again, the characters I think that we get, it's a bigger cast, the way that it's presented and captured is great. There's not a ton there with the characters in terms of them actually sort of going about having these sort of discussions, which I think would arise when you have this sort of unexpected scenario pop up. Um, I think it just would have given the movie a little bit more narrative substance. Um, But again, by no means is it an indication of a film that kind of you just don't care what's happening. Right. That's the thing. I always kind of cared what was happening in the film. I mean, to its credit, it had it's a very indie in terms of like a sci-fi film that handles deep space. Like this has a very indie feel to it. It doesn't have the best budget or the highest budget. And yet at the same time, this film does a great job at conveying different moods and atmospheres. Mm-hmm. And I think a big part of that for me, it's it kind of taps into that, uh, that fear of the ocean that we talked about with 47 meters down. Like, the sh- it's such a big deal that the film cuts to those exterior cameras of the outside of the ship and you see, like, parts of the ship rotating, but then you see the infinite blackness of space. Yeah. And that, for me, is, like, a very terrifying thing. And it's, like, periodically giving us that reminder that, sure, there's people in the inside that are going about their job, they're getting ready to reach Europa, but then, like, reminding the audience that, hey, you're in this infinite blackness, and if anything else happens other than that solar flare help cannot come for you. Nothing is going to save you. If there's one more thing that goes wrong, you're going to be dead in the water, essentially. And that's an element of this film that I felt really made it much more tense than I was expecting. And in that is a big deal in terms of there being a lack of traditional scares for three-fourths of the film, right? I think that atmosphere and that tension is really crucial to like my engagement until they either reach Europa or the next sort of like plot development that happens. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. I mean, you you mentioned uh, Charlotte Copley's character. That was, in in watching this movie the first time, I very vividly remember asking myself, like, I, I understand that his character isn't around between basically, like, the five-minute mark and the 30-minute mark. So you get the impression that something has happened, right? Because you... Uh, Michael Nyquist's character, uh, Andre, he seems a little bit kind of out there to himself a little bit. We're not seeing him. And again, to your uh, seeing, excuse me, um, Charlotte Copley's character. And again, to your point, 
you know, maybe he's just in a, uh, a portion of the spaceship that we're not necessarily getting insight on or something, or maybe he's injured and he's, you know, recovering in some way, but that kind of missing piece for the first 25, 30 minutes, essentially, that started in my head building kind of anxiousness because you understand you're gonna see what exactly happened to him or get uh, clarity on that, but they do it in such a way where you're getting like different pieces of what happened in the film um, in those first 30 minutes and then it helps paint the entire picture. How did you like that um, kind of, you know, the, the way that they went about explaining that? Did you like the fact that you got like little puzzle pieces thrown to you for the, through the first 40 minutes and then you kind of started to see the picture come together? Would you have rather it been presented a little differently? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is an element of the film's narrative that, again, I think really lends itself to the found footage format genre. That being, this is literally found footage, right? That idea that we are being told that this footage was found and they're hinting at sort of an incident that happened and then it basically plays backwards, right? Trying to figure out what happened. And the fact that they like intercut all this footage that jumps around on the timeline, right? That builds in and of itself tension for an event that you don't really know the particulars, you just know that it had some uh, catastrophic results for the crew or for specific members. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that adds tension, but also the narration from the uh, project leaders, the Europa project leaders back on Earth, right? Talking about what happened periodically and things like that. Mm -hmm. It really does make for the perfect sort of found footage documentary style storytelling. And again, it lends itself to this particular format. and. I was really impressed that they were able to take what is a very simplistic story that we've heard hundreds of times before, and they're able to make it have a mystery element to it. And that is really key to telling this familiar story in a way that is actually engaging, that really kind of keeps you, even if you eventually, you kind of have a general idea of where it's headed, right? Of course, there's some incident, people start dying, they found this footage, so the mission was a failure to a certain extent. But it's this idea that we're gonna take a creative avenue to get to that end result is something that I really appreciate. And again, it shows that even if you have a limited budget and you can't tell like a Christopher Nolan-esque space odyssey type time travel story mm -hmm. with $200 million budget or whatever, you can still tell a very effective story even if it might not be sort of the most original one. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with sort of just the jumping around of the timeline. Um, and I think that Initially, I was not prepared for that, and I don't think that that's necessarily conveyed that well initially, right? You kind of, the longer the film goes on, the easier it is to understand, oh, okay, we're jumping back and forth in time, because I was like you the first time I watched it. I was like, so Shardo Copley's character, what's going on? Like, I haven't seen him in 20 minutes. Right. And then you sort of, you realize like, oh, okay, we're actually jumping around in the time period uh, and whatnot, which... I think if that had been conveyed a little better early on, then it kind of would have clicked for me. But in watching it a second time, like my appreciation for that unique sort of narrative spin really kind of just increased on a rewatch. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're talking about him, so we might as well get into like what actually did end up happening to Shartlow. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Really? Shartlow, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, Shardo Copley. Shardo Copley. There we go. Not to butcher his name, but um, so, you know, we about 
I'd say halfway through the movie, a little bit less than that, we get to a scene where that solar flare had hit them. Um, they're doing some sort of workup on the ship. I think it was a, a electrical box that they were trying to open up. And he got some sort of a, a gasoline or oil type of a uh, slick on his, uh, on his suit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was happening while also uh, Michael Nyquist's character, he had a puncture, I believe it was in his uh, glove. And so yeah. he was losing air. And again, you get to see this dynamic of these are all characters that, I mean, at this point, it's not necessarily that we're indifferent to them, but I don't think you're attached to anybody that uh, that heavily. But seeing how the decisions that they have to make, and to your point, the horror of the realization that once Shardo Copley's character closes that the the door, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. um, he's not tethered to the spaceship any longer. Right. And seeing that dynamic of Michael Nyquist's character waking up while Shardo Copley is basically floating away. And I think at one point they mentioned like, uh, while they're fixing the ship up, that it's moving at 125,000 miles per second or something crazy like that, uh, or 125,000 miles per hour. Um, you get the impression that, okay, and again, on his screen as well, or through his point of view, he is floating and within about a minute, he is nowhere, like he's literally miles away from the ship. Um, and so, that horror of what you were talking about of like you being in nothing and it's an endless amount of nothing you know again you see his character for maybe 12 15 minutes of the total movie but i personally probably of all the characters felt the most for him because again you get that insight of he has kids he has a wife he's starting to feel a little bit distraught that he's put them into this position and then his last you know, dying breaths essentially are saying, I'm sorry, can you please let them know that I'm sorry? So it, I don't know, for me, I thought that was kind of one of the more uh, impactful moments of the movie. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is the character that I think stands out the most, which is why I was sort of bummed that he's the first to get killed off mm -hmm. because, right, he's the one that we kind of know the most about, right? He's right. a family man. He's also like, a shit talker and he's like busting people's balls he's talking to nasa in the video and he's like oh they're they're just pissed because you only gave them four outfits and two pairs of shoes or something <laughs> like that like it's such a little moment but i mean i love he's phenomenal and i mean i love him in all of um the neil blumkamp movies like uh, district nine and elysium and chappie and all that i mean he's fantastic and so to not capitalize on the talent that he is in the film is disappointing, but at the same time, he gives us the most, de the death that has the most emotional weight in it, I think. Again, like you said, sacrificing himself to save uh, his coworker, and then realizing like, oh, he potentially has the most to lose because we know he has a family. We don't know everybody else has a family and children. They probably do, but we don't know that. And we're not told that. Um, so that death has more impact, but also to go off of what you're saying about just like the terror of deep space, his only line, I think, afterward, he says, uh, tell my kids and wife I love them, is uh, when he's sailing backwards and there's like no audio in that moment almost other than him talking, right? The kind of like deathly calm of space. Mm -hmm. He just goes like, I'm gone. And then he just keeps drifting and drifting and drifting and drifting. And that's so much more effective than them trying to do some like 
dramatic death where he like he his helmet cracks and he freezes to death or his his suit explodes or whatever something like that i just think that it's so simple and it's such a simple line of dialogue but like that's very chilling and again it's their ability to convey the sense of space in that being deep space and it not being these sort of very traditional wide all-encompassing shots that show you that infinite nothingness it's kind of like that is the instance that has a lot of the uh helmet camera yeah. footage right when they're out there on the panel and then it's him floating backwards and they don't have an over-reliance on any one perspective yes. that they're capturing of this which i think is really important because up until that point we haven't had first person uh perspective i there might have been a handheld camera at one point but again they switch it up so much from interior, exterior, wall-mounted cameras to the documentary after-action report style where people on Earth are being interviewed and then cutting to the head cams. I mean, it really does feel very refreshing throughout the film, right? It never feels sort of played out or trite in the way that they're capturing this story, mm -hmm. which gives it a lot of longevity. And again, like you had said, maybe not a lot necessarily. There aren't a lot of events before they get to Europa, but the ways in which they're telling this story that's familiar is at least interesting and it's feels somewhat different um but yeah his death definitely hit me the hardest and i think that i would have liked a little more added weight to some of the other deaths mm -hmm. because if i'm thinking about it now it's like uh william Yu's death who's like the head pilot i believe mm -hmm. he kind of just like falls and then he died, I assume like he breaks his neck or whatever, but yeah. he's one of those guys where his death kind of just is very sudden. And it's not that it's sudden, it's just that there's no real weight to it. We don't know anything about him really. Yeah. Like he's sort of their uh, un unofficial leader, but at the same time that just cause he's a role doesn't mean we necessarily know or care for him as a person, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was kind of disappointing. But uh, how about you though? What are some other of the character sort of deaths that really stood out to you? Well, I mean, I think to go back real quick, you said something that was super important to the entirety of this movie. And as as kind of uh, as silly as it is to say this, it's very simple. Literally everything in this movie, and particularly the deaths, I think you hit the nail on the head in that. They are simple in this in the way that they're shot in the way that we actually see them happen my personal like favorite was or not favorite my the most impactful death for me outside of Char uh, charlotte copley's was uh dr katya's death played by carolina Widra. her going um so to preface this basically they had sent some sort of uh autonomous robot uh, under the ice to try and collect bacterial samples and things like that, what was going on under there. Under and, the surface of uh, Europa. Yes, thank you. Um, and there seemed to be some sort of radioactive spike and they lost contact with it. And basically she was trying to go out there to continue the mission in some sort of a uh, in some sort of fashion, right? So she was collecting samples uh, from a, a active area of Europa and apparently the ice under her broke. And you see very clearly um, from her eyes, you, you can see like the reflections of light of what she's seeing, but you don't actually see what she's seeing. So that 
it's a very simple way of presenting what's going on without actually going further in, if that makes sense. And I felt that was more impactful, you know, similar to how we talked about Blair Witch, we never actually see the witch um, in the first movie, rather. Uh, we have a very similar dynamic here where you are under the impression that there's something that we don't understand that's going on with those bioluminescent lights, but we have no idea what is the, the cause or what's the genesis of those lights actually occurring. And right. you again very clearly see as she's plummeting through, like there's a GPS device on her suit, you can see her very clearly going under the ice and then I think uh, at one point, uh, Daniel mentioned like she's completely underwater now. And then there's just a moment where there's like five seconds of just, it's, I think the best way that I could put it is like in Deborah Logan, the facial expressions were so incredible that we didn't need to get any other insight on what was happening. We just knew that something was wrong, very significantly, right? Same exact thing with that scene you know that she's about to get fucked up. There's no screaming on her part. There's no like, holy fucking shit, right? It's just her face is basically frozen and it's just her eyes that are doing the work. And that was probably the most impactful and horrifying moment of the entire movie for me is just seeing those like the light reflections in her eyes of what she's very clearly about to get killed by. Yeah, I think that's a really great example of how this movie is able to do a lot with very little. Yeah. And I think that it has a lot to do with, again, changing the perspectives up because we see we go from the interior of the ship to the crew members communicating with her back to that headset mm -hmm. that she's wearing. And they do a really good job of kind of hiding the alien until the very last like minute of the movie. Mm -hmm. And they're able to still convey it in a way that you know there's something out there. You know there's something stalking them and we see glimpses of it but we never see like quote unquote the monster in the light until literally the last frame of the movie. Right. And I think that that is really not only smart in terms of pacing, but also again, the way they're able to convey her death, that's probably the second most memorable uh, sort of like chilling moment in the film for me is that when it cuts to the GPS screen and it shows her location and she was standing on the surface of the ice and then you just see that her GPS icon just drifting underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to get uh, cut cutting back to her perspective underwater, obviously it's just gonna be darkness. There's not gonna be anything there. So instead of going that route, which you would assume they would go because they kind of like capitalizing on that shaky cam, which uh, so many films seem to be plagued by, we get this very simple, this is a GPS screen, but there's added weight to what the GPS obviously represents. So to see her sinking like hundreds and if not thousands of feet underneath the surface into the uh, water and there's no saving her, like that's a very chilling moment because the camera lingers there for a couple of seconds. You have to watch that for like 10 seconds of her just drifting and then eventually her GPS signal just goes dead. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's just a really, really impactful death that is very simplistic. Like that could that death could have been in a $2 million movie instead of whatever this was. I think this was under 10 of some, uh, some amount, but mm -hmm. it really is an instance of doing a lot with very little. And I wish that they had been able to do that with more of the deaths because again, I think um, like Michael Nyquist's death is probably the least or second least memorable just because it's so shaky cam focused. Again, like we hear him screaming over the, the speakers mm -hmm. or the uh, radio about how something's grabbing him or something's 
getting him. The bioluminescent lights are closer and closer. But then it's kind of just like shaky cam and we hear him scream and that's the end of it. Right. Um, and I think that I wish that there had been more moments like the previous two deaths that we talked about. But again, since the film is not littered with these deaths and there's so much time spent highlighting the different uh, psychological deep space aspects, there's also sort of just the unique nar- the unique way in which they tell this narrative. You almost don't need more deaths in the film. Well, obviously you don't, but it's just this idea that the film, your enjoyment of it is not based on these sort of like super memorable kills. It's more that they happen at the right moment, I feel like, yeah. at least if that makes sense. No, 100%. I mean, again, to your point, right? There, the Dan, the deaths of Daniel, William, and I mean Andres, I guess was in there, but more so Daniel and William. I mean, Daniel, I think you don't even hear anything from him when he dies. You just hear Andre going, "He's gone. He just fell under the ice." And William, again, whether it's heroic or, or rather setting aside the heroicism of him like unbuckling himself and i think he uh was it the water tanks that he had uh he basically let go of some sort of tanks that prevented them from like going through the ice when they uh fell back on impact um and then obviously he get his he got his neck completely crushed in um but those two deaths they I don't know if it would have been more impactful if we saw, a like to your point, if there was like a bunch of blood everywhere or if there was more screaming or anything like that. I think the way their deaths went were similar to their characters where they are there and not again, not to say that it's a body count thing, but I, I don't think the movie would have necessarily improved that much in my eyes if they had more, you know, quote unquote, memorable deaths. I think the most uh, underrated death is one that we actually don't even see, which is Rosa. Um, because essentially what she does at the end is she opens up the air uh, air hatch. So whatever is down there can come into the spaceship. And again, to your point, the last thing that we really see is uh, a glimpse of what seems to be like an octopus. Some Some type of alien organism that was uh, living beneath the surface of Europa. Right. And Rose's death in in retrospect, that's probably going to be the worst one in my eyes, just because at least, uh, what's her face? At least Dr. Katya, yeah, it's bad that she fell through the ice. I'm imagining her death was relatively quickly. You're going into freezing ice cold water you're sinking and you're about to get eaten (laughs) and you don't have any kind of covering or suit or anything like that so yeah she probably got the the worst of the the brunt of that um but you don't even see it you don't actually see her die you don't even see her like technically go into the water you just see the cut scene of that you know the alien i'm gonna refer to as an alien octopus Uh, (laughs) but but that's it and i i think again to come back to your point of it's simple you don't have to have this monster moment where it rips rose's character apart and there's blood everywhere and then you know it goes back to the scene of uh one of the doctors that are in nasa back on earth going i can't believe i saw that right like 
there's no need for it. It obviously could be interesting for a horror movie to get the blood and gore and all that stuff, but it wasn't necessary. And again, it hits back on the point, um, not to beat this to death, but the simplicity of this movie and how it was carried out, whether it's from the shots and whether it's from the deaths, I think it enhanced the movie rather than taking away from it. So I, I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, I really appreciate what I appreciate about Rose's death is that it really it comes full circle into the uh, the idea that's presented early on in the film. And I think it's presented by her, this idea that even if we don't discover anything, that's a discovery. Yep. At the same time, the opposite side of that is, is like our sacrifice allows people back home to know what we discovered, whether that be something or nothing. And to really sacrifice yourself to give the people back at home an indication that there is life on this planet, it is hostile. Like that sacrifice then actually has more meaning to it rather than just like she gets eaten at the end, right? Because if it could have very much been that it ends and it's not her choice to make that sacrifice, but it really empowers her character to make that choice, to decide that she's gonna sacrifice herself to benefit the people back home. So they're made aware. And the one thing I didn't understand was how there's any communication, how that image gets out back to earth because oh. their communications were knocked out. Did I miss part of that? Yeah, so the very end when uh, uh, Michael Nyquist's character, what um, they basically are stuck in the ice. And when Daniel's character falls in, apparently there was no way at that point then for them to actually be able to lift off the, the Europe, uh, the rock, right? So what I believe he did is he took the battery that was being used for life support and he oh. applied it towards the one for communication and that's why and again to your point the, the structure of the movie then found footage wise becomes all that more interesting because then it's not just that they had been gone you know they've been out of communication for 18 months all the data that they're getting has is just completely useless at that point right if it's not going anywhere so they were able to upload whatever the 18 months of data that they had before that structure fell, which I don't know how that works and how many gigabytes that they're able to send like that, but that's a different point. Um, but yeah, I think that's how they were able to like shoot off communications. And then that's how, um, you know, the story basically came about to be. Gotcha. Yeah, that was the little detail that I missed, but I did like this idea that like, it actually makes the ending even more terrifying that we know there's a delay in Earth receiving that data because they watched, they have to sit through all 18 hours of that footage. And actually one thing that I thought was kind of funny was periodically the footage fast forwards mm -hmm. through like mundane actions of there not being somebody in a specific part of the ship or just like them eating or cooking or sleeping or whatever. And I like that because it's kind of immersive, this idea that like, yeah, if you're documenting something 24 hours a day, there's going to be a bunch of mundane, boring shit that you record and you're not going to sit through it. So that was like a little editing thing that I thought helped make it seem just more immersive. But yeah, I mean, them having to sit through that 18 hours of footage and then the last two frames of that footage, it's like, oh shit, there's alien life on that planet. That makes it even more terrifying. And I mean, what did you think about such a lack of the actual like alien? Do you think that it's more effective having it only show up in that last moment? Or do you think maybe they could have given us a few more glimpses of it throughout when they're on the planet? I think the way that there's 
little like crumbs of evidence that you get throughout the movie, right? There's a moment as soon as they land on Europa where Michael Nyquist's character is, uh, I, I forget, he was like changing something or he was uh, making an adjustment to some sort of equipment. And then he says he saw some sort of light moving on the ice. And, you know, again, to your point, uh, some of the crew are like, or I think it was Daniel, or rather William, uh, the captain of the crew, who's like, we also need to have a contingent situation, or at least thought of th that, you know, his mind is playing tricks on him and he might not be fully here with us. Um, and then that kind of goes into the scene of like, you know, them trying to give him a sedative, I think it was for him to relax, right? Um, I personally really enjoyed the fact that you're you're in the dark just like they're in the dark uh right uh not to use a play on words there but um they they're very much we're i i like the fact that we're both in the same seat of knowledge it's not like we have an understanding that there are aliens or there that is some sort of actual light coming or emanating from an animal or some sort of an alien rather than you know that that psychological aspect of are have they just gotten to this point and they want to see something so bad that their brain is playing tricks on them i think it would have been i've never seen apollo 18 i i've know of it and i know what you're talking about that russian alien thing that was chasing after those guys apparently i think this movie would have lost its luster had that been a similar type of a concept or even if we actually you know we see one of those tentacles or whatever that you know alien octopus thing had come through the ice and kill like you know drag dan uh excuse me michael nyquist's character down or eat dr katya's character or whatever i just i think the lack of understanding or the lack of our our seeing it creates in our mind a bigger or worse picture than what it actually could have been because Again, I had no idea. It could have been an octopus. It could have been, it could have been humans underwater, like some sort of mer. I mean, you know, I have no idea. Right? It could be anything. Um, yeah. So I think imagination is scarier than reality in most cases. And I think this movie did a really good job of of utilizing our imagination to make the, this monster potentially worse than what it actually was. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's a strength of the film and that casting that doubt and that we really are in the same shoes as these characters, right? When we don't, we're not given any more information than they are, which is very rare. How many times are, is there a scene in a found footage movie that is solely for the audience? It is clear that we are being shown a monster or we're being shown something that merely serves to let the audience know, but then the people filming it actually miss it, right? Those characters kind of miss it. So all of a sudden, the audience knows what's going to happen before the characters do. And that always kind of takes me out of it a little bit because it's this idea that, oh, I'm being reminded that I am watching a horror movie. Whereas yeah. in this film, there's so much doubt that at a certain point, I didn't know whether there was actually going to be organic life on that planet or if it was just going to be crew members cracking up from deep space travel, which yeah. makes it more, I mean, inevitably you kind of knew that it was going to go the route that it goes, but I think having that doubt in the film is really interesting because then it's kind of this thing where it's like, well, are these people whose minds and bodies are breaking down and they're sort of like turning themselves against one another? Or is there actually something out there in the dark? And that is 
definitely the most terrifying aspect of the film for me. But I think something that you said also was really important is that the film just like stays in its lane. It doesn't try to do too much. We keep saying that it's a simple film, but it's it's simple by design rather than simple for simplicity's sake. And I think that had they tried to go the route of like having more tentacles come out of the water, preach the ice and all these things, we're going to start to see some of the limitations of the film's budget and the resources that went into it. And as soon as you start to see those limitations, you're like, well, if you didn't have the resources to do it, why did you do it anyways? Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be more effective than something that's been done by a film and a crew that have the means to actually capitalize on that and do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, I mean, we've seen how many horror films try to do that, right? They're like, oh, I got this cool idea, but not the budget to do it. And it's like, well, maybe you should have written to scale at that point rather than like, hey, I'm going to shoot for the moon, even if I don't have a budget to like get me out of the atmosphere kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, again, right there, there are those space movies or quote unquote space movies like a Pandorum where we are under the impression that we're dealing with something up until the end where it's completely different than what we thought we were the movie uh, preface was right or premise rather um then you have event horizon and like there's a you know a, a i forget what exactly it was it was like a orb or something right that they it was like a hell portal yeah basically those movies are phenomenal but they're different if there was any kind of a sense like again not to mangle this point but if they had gone if they had strayed out any other way than what Europa Report did I think this movie would have been immensely worse than it was um I think the way that they executed on it I don't know if there's a better way that they could have done it with the with the budget that they were dealing with yeah this really was the kind of best case scenario for this film and what it could what it wanted to do and what it set out to do because I think had they not applied a lot of the sort of again unique aspects in tackling its narrative the movie would have just been boring for a majority of its runtime i think I, I think that if it had just been like one of the crew members has a camera and i think that this is the case with apollo 18 which i haven't seen but i'm pretty sure this is the case it's all headset cameras or it is because i think it takes place back in the day it takes place in the 60s i think so then they have a handheld camera in space and it very much becomes that thing where it's like, well, you wanted to make Blair Witch in space. Right. And you have some pretty severe limitations and those limitations result in them doing shaky camera shit constantly to get around those limitations. Whereas Europa Report is not concerned with kind of trying to replicate a traditional found footage film. It's doing its own unique blending and very much a 21st century modernized version of found footage. This idea that there's cameras everywhere now. There's cameras inside, there's cameras outside. And, and I think never losing track of like the setting of space because how easy could it have been for them to do a handheld camera that's just inside the space station the entire time? That would have been pretty boring after the first 30 minutes. And I think that using the sort of narrative where we're getting a sense of the inside, the outside, but also footage and interviews of people back on earth really makes this more, a smarter way to approach a very basic story. And it shows that you can do a lot with very little. You just have to be willing to maybe just find that unique sort of creative route in telling that story. And I think that makes all the difference in the world. So that way, by the end of the film, when you get to that sort of like monster moment, even if it's fleeting, it still has more of an impact because you haven't seen that throughout the entire movie. And it's been building to that. And so 
that it makes the ending very satisfying, mm-hmm. even if it's only three or four seconds long. Right. I mean, it, my question, I guess, to you would be because I know that when I, I broached this, you were uh, you had a, a little bit of a reservation on this movie. In, in total, are you satisfied with this film? And would you rank it? Uh, as like a top five space horror slash space thriller type of movie. I definitely had reservations and uh, I was glad to see that they were unfounded, mm-hmm. right? This idea that I was kind of skeptical of this idea that, well, for stars, like how heavy of a sci-fi uh, sort of disaster narrative is it going to have, right? And I appreciate that it doesn't really dabble a lot into the sort of horror until the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I like that because it allows the horror element to really pop at the end. Um, so in terms of that, I definitely enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. And I enjoyed, I, and frankly, I enjoy the film. It's not just that it exceeded my low expectations. Like this is a great found footage film. No. They found a way to, and it's not necessarily great because it really captures like the horror, but it's more about just the blueprints, I think in a lot of ways for telling a narrative that is completely, um, reliant on that specific found footage format. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like just a sci-fi story they decided to tell through found footage. You could only tell this story through found footage because of the implications of this being recovered footage and then the different ways in which that they use those perspectives and whatnot to tell the story. Um, Is it a top five? I'm not necessarily sure. I think it's a great space horror movie. I don't, I would, yeah, I would say it's, it's probably top five, actually. Now I'm thinking about how many space horror movies are out there. I mean, you've got the two big ones, which are like Pandorum and um, Event Horizon. This um, Apollo 18, which I've heard is not very good. And I probably won't watch that one. But um, yeah, in terms of like the few space horror movies that I've seen, this is definitely up there as one that I think definitely does a lot more than people would expect it to be based on just how sort of generic and borderline it sounds it mm-hmm. actually is incredibly entertaining for uh, for the type of movie it is and the type of story it's telling how about you um it's probably like it's probably three or four for me um just because i was looking at movies that fit this criteria and it's like uh Jason in space, I guess you could throw on there. Species, Alien, actually. No, Alien's in there. Um, yeah, I mean, if we're going to get into like the nitty gritty of all of these space horror films, yeah, you've got like Alien and the like. But I think, I guess I'm thinking in terms of found footage films. Got I think this is definitely one of the, uh, one of the stronger found footage films. Yeah, because, I mean, if we're going to start talking about Alien and all that, then, I mean, this film is just it- like... I don't think I can even have this in the same conversation, but it's it's definitely one of the stronger found footage films out there. And I think that in the context of found footage, it's an easy recommendation. Um, And it's a bonus that it takes place in space. Right. This idea that it has space and a horror element to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily enter it into the conversation of like the great sci fi space horror films, but it's one of those. Found, in terms of found footage, it definitely succeeds more than it fails for me. So I'm going to ask you something that is incredibly important. I need your honest answer on this. Have you ever seen John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars? I have not. And that's one of my most egregious John Carpenter oversights. That, uh, 
that could because I don't know if that it's been a long time since I watched that movie um, but uh, but but shout out uh, some of that cast it's phenomenal um, especially looking back on it 20 years ago uh, <laughs> but Jason Stratham Ice Cube Natasha Henstridge yeah Clea Duval it's, it's not too shabby but um, I would be interested in seeing if potentially this could be on, on the menu for uh, some follow up movies that we have Absolutely. I mean, it looks like it's streaming on Pluto TV right now for free. So, well, as of uh, as of March 28th. So, yeah, man, that could be something in the future we could chat about if you're down. Yeah, might be, might be. But um, either way, I I'm uh, I'm I'm happy that we were able to talk about this because uh, it's definitely a, a little bit more of a a niche uh, in the horror subgenres. Um, but I, I, I definitely think your Oprah report is something that uh, if you haven't listened or if you haven't watched rather, um, you should definitely throw it on your list of things to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. I, this was another great uh, recommendation of yours and I'm glad you recommended it because it's one of those movies that pops up on all the streaming services, but it's kind of my shitty preconceived notion based on the cover art. It kind of just looks like very generic, but this was a pleasant surprise uh, and I was happy to talk about it with you today. So thanks, man, for suggesting this. Of course, brother. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next time.